0: Hello friends and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast Motos and Friends! My name is Arthur Coldwells. In this week's first segment, editor Don Williams takes us through the new 2023 Kawasaki KLR650S. This simple machine has been around in various iterations for over 30 years and could arguably be called the original ADV bike. Of course it has its pluses and a couple of minuses too depending on what you use it for. This new S model has a reduced seat height which will certainly appeal to many riders. Don takes us through everything this new version of the venerable KLR does well and not so well. In the second segment Associate Editor TJ Adams chats with Maddie Patterson Maddie started out as an Umbrella Girl on the MotoGP grid, but there's a lot more to Maddie than just good looks. She's bright, articulate and a really good creative writer. Ultimately, she's managed to parlay those talents into becoming a journalist. Maddie's driving force is helping others, and she's done everything from adopting a donkey, mentoring young up-and-coming racers and advocating for rider safety. Significantly, she and her husband raised money for the Ukraine and made several trips to the war zone, carrying in much-needed medical supplies. So, there's a lot to be admired about Maddie Patterson, including her survival from a life-changing accident. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The new
1: 2023 Kawasaki KLR650S. Now the KLR has a long, long history uh, with Kawasaki in the dual sport world. Over 30 years ago, uh, they started with a KLR 600, and that was more of a, that was a dual a typical d- dual sport bike of the time. And then uh, they eventually morphed it into the KLR 650, which, although we didn't know it at the time, was something of a precursor to adventure bikes. It's uh, considerably heavier than an average dual sport bike. Uh, you know, dual sport bikes you have around 300 pounds. You know, let's say between 250 and 350, give and take. The KLR is over 400 pounds, and it has a fairing. So it's the KLR 650 is is definitely more of an adventure bike than a dual sport bike. Although, again, when it came out, nobody had the term adventure bike to talk about. They only had dual sport bikes to talk about. So a lot of people rode them in dual sport bikes, including uh, one of our editors at large, David Powell. And he rode a KLR 650 that he had the first, first generation insane places. The guy rode it like it was a a KTM 500. So uh, he of course ended up breaking multiple parts like frames, suspension. He was just overriding the bike, but, but he loved it and he could take it two up. And uh, there are a lot of good things to say about the bike. And, and it, uh, developed a a rabid following, very a big cult. A lot of people bought those bikes over the years, and as as the bike aged, uh, they they kind they, they kind of morphed it more towards the adventure world. The original one had pretty long travel suspension and was was dirt capable. It had an eighteen inch rear wheel, twenty one inch front, which it still does have, but it had that. But it had very long travel suspension, like over ten inches. So that encouraged people to ride it like dual sport bike, even though it was really an adventure bike. And so uh, the first generation move that they made was to to shorten the suspension to eight and a half, nine inches around there, which uh, actually I tested that back in the Rob report motorcycling days. And uh, it was a big improvement for the bike because ultimately uh, the bike weighs, like I said, about 450 pounds. So you know, if you're not, it's a lot of dirt bike. <laughs> so it's really more of a, a street bike that has, you know, pretty good dirt capability for what it is. And so when you take it out and, you know, if you're going riding, basically, in my opinion, and I think Damon would agree with me on this, that if you start breaking this, if you're bottoming out the suspension or breaking the frames, you need to move to a different bike rather than complain about the one you have. <laughs> right right in in the case of the klr 650 they said you know what people don't need to have 10 inches of travel they're not going to be doing triple jumps they're not going to be doing whoops they're they're not doing that's not who's buying this bike and it's not who should be buying this bike and it's not who should be riding this bike so they shortened the suspension which had the dual goal or the dual success of actually making it a better street bike because you know you just lower but also made it a better dirt bike because you were more in control of the bike you know the seat was closer to the ground the suspension when they shortened it they also firmed it up some uh, the old suspension was very soft because it had a lot of travel so it had you know if, if you didn't make it soft it would you'd never use the travel so there'd be kind of no point in having it it was very soft and so when they they shortened the travel they also firmed it up so you kind of had effectively the same amount of travel but you were lower to the ground which made it a better dirt bike and uh you know, that was, that was good. And so we, we had that for over 10 years. And, uh, then the KLR 650 disappeared and people were like, no, 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 please bring back the KLR 650 because, <laughs> you know, you have this kind of 30 years of fandom and all of a sudden they've canceled the show and they, well, I want more episodes. And so, you know, people were disappointed and, and didn't want to see the bike disappear. And, you know, it, there's a reason for the, the following, uh, Although BMWs are often the, the pick for bikes to go around the world, a lot of people have ridden KLR 650s around the globe or from you know, the, the bottom of South America to the top of North America. Uh, it's it's, it's you know, a stone reliable bike. Uh, the motor doesn't put out a lot of power. It's a 650, but it puts out, mm, say, 35 horsepower, which is less than, say, a KTM 390 adventure.
2: <laughs>
1: but, but it has... a A little extra uh, ability and that is it has pretty much the same amount of torque from 100 rpm above idle all the way to redline so when you're riding it no matter what when you crack the throttle it pulls same amount everywhere so although it doesn't have the top horsepower kind of like a cruiser it has a ton of torque and again for the way you would ride this bike that torque comes in handy so anyway so the bike disappeared all these, you know, the great features that people had, they, it was gone. They didn't really replace it with anything. <laughs> so, I mean, there was the Versus 650, but the Versus 650 is purely a street bike. It kind of, it's adventure looking, but it's not something you take out off road. I mean, you drive it on a dirt road, but you can ride anything on a dirt road. Uh, You know, it it it, it has 17 inch wheels. The, the Versus, all the Versuses are, are street bikes that have the adventure look, which Nothing wrong with that, and that's actually great. The bike Versus is a fun bike for that, but it's not like a real adventure bike. So the the Kawasaki Faithful was like, well, we don't have anything, and we want something. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they gave them something. Uh, they brought back the KLR a few years later, and which was a few years ago from now, and uh, it had fuel injection. They would kind of upgraded the bike. They uh, added fuel injection. Again, it was a 30-year-old bike, so it had... Uh, a carburetor although it still had double red cam liquid cooled motor so it you know there's that modernity about it you know electric start of course and everything like that but now it had uh, EFI which some people you know kind of don't want because if you're riding around the world you might want to be able to fix the carburetor yourself personally I mean I'm not riding the world around the world so I can't tell you about that exactly but right EFI is a pretty mature technology and I like it it always works you don't have to re-jet, the jets don't plug. You have a lot fewer problems. so it's it's kind of this age old thing. Whereas as the carburetor is easier to fix, it's also more likely to have problems. And I'm I'm not a great mechanic, especially out of the, on the road side of the road somewhere. I'd rather have something that works more often than something I can fix more often. Yeah.
0: You know. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Yeah. 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 I, I get it. I agree with you actually.
1: And you know, and if it goes wrong, well, you know there's other electrical things on the bike that could go wrong. The ignition could go wrong and you're, you're stuck, you know, you're not going to bring the magneto back. So, you know, you just have to kind of move on and say, yes, that's something that could could go wrong, but it's, it's worth it. So anyway, it had fuel injection. Uh, they changed the suspension a bit, uh, put a different bigger fairing on it to make it even more of an adventure bike. And although they still don't call it an adventure bike, and, you know, it's still in the, it's got its own designation you know the the real dual sport bikes are klx's the klx 300 and the klx 230 this is a klr you know they still stuck with that old designation which just is a different one than the klx klx was always kind of the dirt bikes and then the klr were the street bikes because there was also a klr 650 or excuse me klr 250 but the klr 250 disappeared became the klx 250 but the in this case they decided KLR we're going we're going to stick with that that name. It's a good name, people like it, people understand what it is. And now that's the adventure bike without being called an adventure bike. So that's kind of where we're at with this bike is that it uh you know it's it's uh still pretty capable dirt bike. I mean it's it's something that I would take on a single track, you know, a, an easy single track, but I would not hesitate to take it on a single track whereas on something like a a big bore you know, big inch uh, uh, adventure bike, I'd be like, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, I'm just, no way. Or, you know, and it was okay going through the sand. Not great, but way better than a regular adventure bike. And so this year, when we get to the risk, they've actually done something that's pretty interesting just as the original uh, version when it got shortened, made it a better dirt bike. They now have the KLR650S, which has shorter suspension travel, and a cut-down seat to lower the uh, seat height a huge amount, relatively speaking. Uh, The old seat height was 34.3 inches, and the new seat height, or the S's seat height, is 32.1 inches. So we're talking 2.2 inches. I mean, that's a lot. That is a a huge difference. And as soon as you get on the bike, you feel it. (laughs) It's like Mm -hmm. you, you swing your leg over. First of all, it's easy. And then you sit down, it's like, My feet they're like flat on the ground instead of being on the balls of my feet i'm like oh yeah i'm just like it's like wow this bike is low and it's funny i mentioned the ktm 390 adventure just a few minutes ago and the seat height is lower than a a ktm 390 adventure you know it's 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 low so you now have this kind of low slung adventure bike but it still has you know decent suspension travel uh you know, you have 6.7 inches of travel, which is good. And uh, that's, that's 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 enough for what you wanted to me for what you want to do on a 450-pound bike. You don't, you're not gonna be doing the big jumps. If you're gonna be doing the big jumps, there's other motorcycles for you to buy. This right. is the one that is for you to just be cruising around off-road. Oh, there's this little trail going that way. It looks pretty easy. I think I can go do that. I'm going down this dirt road out in the middle of the desert or somewhere. Yeah, no problem. Bike's great for that. So, but now I'm lower to the ground. When I'm riding around town, my feet are on the ground. Even when I'm off-road, if I need to paddle because it's a little tricky, bang, my feet, I feel good the whole time. It's like whenever I get on this bike and I go take it, you know, because I did a lot of testing in the dirt in wells in the street. And in the street, so it, you know, the seat height wasn't really that big a deal. You know, you just stop and put your feet down. You're you're, all, you're fine. But it's off-road where when things start to get a little sketchy, you want to be able to put that foot down when the bike starts to tip because the bike weighs 460 pounds.
3: And when mm-hmm. 460
1: pounds starts to go on away, I am not, you know, the Incredible Hulk. I'm not going to just pull that back up straight or I'm not going to be like Mark Marquez and put my elbow down and pop it back up. That bike is just going to fall. So the lower I am to the ground, the more I can use my legs, the more I can, uh, you know, push off. And also the center of gravity is lower, so the bike is going to handle better. So, you know, mm. it, they, mm. they 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 reduce the thickness of, and they also firm the suspension up even f- further. But the suspension is still plush. You know, it's like it was ultra plush, and then it was very plush, and now it's just plush. <laughs> You know, And so it's fine. It's not like you go, oh, the suspension is now so stiff. It doesn't work. It's great. The suspension, again, for what you want it to do, if you're reasonable about the expectations of of buying a motorcycle like this, perfectly fine. Exactly what you're looking for. So they made these changes. I can put my feet down on the ground and kind of relax when I'm riding. I know that if I need to put my foot down when I'm riding and push off and lose my balance, no problem. So... Uh, I started you know riding around, and uh, it's great. It's really great. I've been a KLR fan. I've tested for magazines since the very beginning one. Uh, the first one I thought was cool. You know, it was big. It was different. It was it was still a cool bike. It wasn't like a big BMW twin. You know, it wasn't like a Honda XR six fifty L dual sport bike. But again, it wasn't like a big BMW R whatever 100 or 1200 or 1150, whatever it was they had at that time, although they probably had multiple BMWs over that period. uh, You know, it was, it was, it was an in-between bike. And again, by watching Damon Powell ride it, it was like, you could do whatever you want. Although the big, big extra part is that the tires, the tires on the stock KLR 650 are actually like these old Dunlops that that date back to the the 1900s, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a dunlop k750 they must make it only for this bike because nobody buys this tire never heard of it otherwise but it's it's you know it's it's an okay dual sport tire but i mean if if i owned the bike the first thing i would do is t- you know toss those tires and, and put something it was either more streetable like an adventure tire if i was going to be saying you know what i'm riding on the street my dirt des- my dirt desires are very minimal and so i'm just going to st- stick with that or on the other way i'd say well, i'm going to go off road a lot so i'm going to get you know, some kind, some kind of dual sport tire, like a Dunlop D606 or something like that, that's much more dirt oriented. And then, and that makes the bike, as we know, tires for almost everything, you know. And if you get good traction, you can ride well. If you don't get good traction, it doesn't matter how great the bike handles, the bike won't work. You know, as, as I've right. said to people, you know, so I said, I could take a, a super sport bike with knobbies. And I'd do better on a motocross track than I would on a motocross bike with slicks, you know. Right. I I wouldn't get t- ten feet with the slicks. So tires is hugely important. So uh, as with any bike, and or even more so with the, than most bikes, the KLR 650 really will benefit from you getting exactly the right tire for what you want. But you know, we test them stock usually, and and in this case, the the that K750 is a good all around tire. It was great on the street. Most of these all around tires are fine street bike tires. Again, for what it does. We have a low horsepower, high torque motor, you know, easy handling. So it's not putting, you're not putting a lot of demands on the tire. You're not like, you know, oh edge grip, dah, 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 going over here, you <laughs> know, or uh, getting yeah. on the throttle hard. Oh, it's spinning up the rear. It's like this engine is probably the slowest engine. You're gonna ride that's big enough to like take on the freeway. Mm, now it will, okay. it will go a hundred miles an hour. I got it up to a hundred. You know, maybe it was going a little downhill. Maybe there's a little wind behind me, but I, I got it up to a hundred. But it takes a while because it's all that torque kind of building up and kind of saying, "Okay, I'll keep going a little faster, go a little faster." It does not. <laughs> it revs slow, but. You know where I took it. I, I I took it in the desert, out on the sand, which is not its. You know, it, again, that's it's, it's starting to get to be kind of heavy for the sand, and the 21-inch front wheel, which is great on like technical dirt road type stuff where it's rocky and things, is not so great in the sand. because It's narrow, so it's kind of knifing in, and and you have to be a bit brave, which I can be, you know, and get on the gas and just let that front end float. But man, you're you're working with a lot of weight. And you don't have a lot of room for error. So right. anyway, but on the dirt roads I took, I, I went on some dirt, uh, you know, Forest Service roads that I hadn't been on for a while. And this year in Southern California, we had very extreme weather, lots of rain, lots of rain, and more rain, and then some more rain. And mm-hmm. so you have a lot of ruts in the rocky in these roads that used to be pretty easy riding, and I would take adventure bikes on. All of a sudden, I was like man i'm glad i'm on this kale 650 and not like a real you know you know adventure bike with 17 inch rear wheel 19 inch front and these kind of street tires with little grooves in them to pretend that they're you know off-road tires these tires are better than that not as good as i would have liked but the bike because it has the throat the, the really slow throttle response and the really mellow feel of the big thumper It just, and the pull from everywhere, I was just able to like, just dial almost like an electric bike and people aren't going to like that, but it's like an electric bike. So the the power's everywhere all the time, always on demand, you know, you never fall off the cam. So I was able to pick my way up these like tricky parts of the uphills, you know, that again, I like, when I get to the bottom, I'd go around a corner and then there'd be this like kind of steep, not like a hill, but just like a steep, you know, grade, but it's all like rutted out. And there's rocks exposed and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, and I'm by myself. So I'm going to have to pick this bike up somehow if I drop it, which I'd rather not do. And so I just kind of get on the gas and it just, every time would make it to the top and, uh, and pretty much without drama, you know, I mean, you have try blitzing it, but I don't know that that would be the better way to do it. Uh, you know it would help the because of the 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 tires not being the great greatest grip that momentum is really your friend but you can't you can only count on so much momentum with that much weight it's it's tricky you know and and i'm you know a bit more cautious than that but anyway i was able to go on these roads where i was a couple times like going okay time to pay attention and i'm going to earn my pay today and would go up them no problem and uh much easier than I expected. Like, Oh, I did that. Okay. That was cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get to the next one of those. Oh, okay. That was good. And, uh, on downhills, uh, this tires get pretty good suspension, or good, pretty good traction. So the brakes work fine. It has ABS and, uh, not a problem on that. And, uh, so it, it was really a fun bike to ride. I mean, I kind of went into the KLR with the, you know, decades of experience riding them and thinking, okay, well, how's this going to be shorter? And it's like, yeah, it's great. You know, I can take it. I can take it places. I wouldn't want to take the older KLRs, especially like the first one that was really tall because I can feel like I'm not, I'm less likely to fall off of it. I'm never going to use those 10 inches of travel, you know, anyway. So the fact that I've got 6.7 or whatever this is, is, is just right. And I think maybe I bottomed it once, you know, but I that yeah, was fine you know it's okay to bottom right. once in a while that just means right. you're getting your money's worth out of the travel but it's the, the firmer travel so I don't even know that I wouldn't have would have wouldn't have bothered it when it had 10 inches of travel because that was a softer 10 inches and then the bike's right. just moving more you know by firming up the suspension the bike wallows way less than it used to and to me that's a positive that makes the bike handle better the bike's more predictable you don't you know you don't have too many too much momentum going in directions you don't want it to go so it, it was a, a big improvement there uh like i said on the, on the pavement you know i was doing the mountain roads it's just great you know you you have to not be in a hurry because it's you, when you get on the throttle you're not going to get that rush of speed but you know it moves along uh like i said the cornering is good the bike has really great ergonomics I was worried about the shorter seat you know they, they took some of the padding out and and <laughs> the, the, the you know the the, the gaps from the seat to the you know I'm 510 uh, in seems like 29 or whatever it is the the gap from the seat to the pegs did not seem excessively short which I thought it might with the, sh- the shorter seat height and the bars felt a little high you know if you lower the seat, the bars go up (laughs) you know (laughs) speaking people don't you know it's like the bars go up and the foot pegs go up (laughs) so uh i mean i I think i prefer the other ergonomics a bit i like a a, a stretched out bike you know i like having some leg room i don't like my hands up that high but you know some people will like that better i some people won't always put on lower bars yeah you can put on you could you could try to find some lower bars. Lowering the foot pegs would be probably impossible, but again, so it's like on one hand you say, well, the this lower seat height is for lower shorter people, and it is. You know, uh, you know, we have shorter five six female riders on the staff, and for them it's it's awesome. You know, they get on this like, oh wow, this is cool. I can, this is this is amazing, right. but uh, you know, at the same time, even for a, a taller person. Having that lower center of gravity and an ability to reach the ground whenever you need to is a huge advantage. You know, you're not a big dirt bike guy at all. You know, and, and even not a much of an adventure bike guy. But if you yeah. rode this, you would immediately go, oh, "Okay, I can I can deal with this. This this makes oh. some sense to me." Whereas if it, we were up, you know, if you were on the original one, you'd be like, "No way, I'm not going on a <laughs> dirt road. The thing is going to slip out from under me, and I'm going to you know crash it." Whereas right. when sitting low, you're like, oh, no, I'm good. I'm cool. You know, it, it makes me want to go out to Death Valley, which is closed right now because of the roads yeah, are all wiped out. But, uh, you know, and go, go off on some trip where you just go. You know, I've always wanted to go to the racetrack in Death Valley, which is a yeah. famous, like, natural landmark. And I've never done it because it's kind of a pain in the butt to get there.
0: There's like 30, I, mi- 30 miles off road, but this would be the perfect yeah. bike to do it on.
1: Yeah, well, it's off pavement, as I always say.
0: Off, off pavement, yes. It,
1: it's still a road, and it, you, you can drive a car down it, you know. Well,
0: 30- four, four-wheel drive, and it needs to be tall because it's pretty rocky, apparently. Okay. I haven't okay. done it, but it, but people talk about, you know, you need a jeep to do it if you're going to drive it. Okay,
1: well yeah. then that would be something that would this bike would be at the edge of what you would, you'd probably want knobbies, you know, you'd want right. to say okay, I'm throw on some knobbies so that I can get some traction on the on the trickier parts, but. uh you know, the bike, it makes, I, I actually did take it on, uh, you know, I've been riding forest roads in Southern California for 50 years. And you kind of would think that I'd been on all of them, but I actually found one. I do was to home that I'd never been on. I like, so I saw the sign. I go, what? I don't remember seeing this. Maybe it's <laughs> now marked as that. But anyway, it, it turned out to be like a 10 mile, 11 mile ride that was a dead end, but it was still cool, you know? And I got to see like different view of the forest than I'd ever seen. But the, the KLR is a kind of bike that, you know, encourages that kind of thing. It's like, Oh, well, I'm just going to go down this road. Oh, look what I found. And Oh, this is cool. And the fact that seven miles, this is a, this is a high quality dirt road. Again, this is something you could drive a car on, but it is dirt, you know, it's pure dirt. And, uh, you know, it was just fun. It was like, oh, I'm driving right around. It's cool. And I'm seeing all this stuff. And wow, look at that. Oh, there's a mine out here. There's two mines. Oh, look at that. <laughs> oh, wow. There's a view of the of, of Highway 14 that I've never seen. Oh, it looks like that from here. Oh, this is cool. So, I mean, that's so you know everybody has a different idea of what motorcycling is about and motorcycling is about a lot of different things but one of the things i like about a dual sport bike or an adventure bike is it encourages that sort of like going out there into the world and seeing what there is that you've never seen before and going somewhere you've never gone and getting a perspective of where you live that's different than you've ever seen right and this bike did it for me it took me out there and then uh i went out with associate editor kelly Cowan. Uh, we were doing a she had she had again, this is why I probably mentioned it a couple of times, the KTM390 adventure. And so we were th- that she's doing a test of and we took it out through the Antelope Valley on a road I'd never been on. Now it wasn't like a particularly unusual road. If you're familiar with that area, it's it's a big giant flat area, and there's a number of dirt roads that go east, west, north, south. <laughs> so we okay. went on one that we'd never been on before. And actually, it was kind of cool. It was it was right near the uh, it, it went right on the border of the poppy reserve. That if you go out there certain times of the year is like insane with people, but th- this was in you know this time of the year there's no poppies. It's just weeds everywhere. And uh, but we went out there and we actually saw some sunflowers and stuff. It was pretty cool. And it was a road I had never been on. And uh, there were a couple challenging sections for the KLR because of the sand, you know. And that 21 inch is still there. I kind of wish, you know, I shouldn't even say it, you know, it's hard, to, but maybe a 17-19 combo for the bike, if they're going to keep adventurizing it, would be good. Because uh, if you have a 19 in front rather than 21, you have a wider tire and it just gets more flotation in the sand and it just makes it a little bit more capable in the sand, and sand is a lot of part of dirt or gravel or something. Whereas the 21 inch is more for like rocky terrain and more challenging terrain where you're not really generally gonna be riding the KLR 650. You know, right. you kind of say, you know, that's, I have a different bike for that, or I'm gonna get a different bike because that's what I wanna do. The, the KLR is more of a easy road sort of thing, but you, you get into sand, a lot of places in Southern California, you'll have a great road and then all of a sudden there'll be a stretch of sand. (laughs) So we were just like, okay, I got to deal with this. You know, uh, you know, I think you probably remember that story that Jess and I did about doing the, uh, going to see the Mojave megaphone. Yes. And, and, you know, we had like two miles of Sahara desert type sand and that was just brutal because we were on the, uh, KTM 890 adventure, luckily adventure R, I was riding that. So I had, I, I drew the lucky number and just was on the BMW uh, 850 Adventure, and uh, you know the K- 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 KTM's more dirt, right? You know, works better in the dirt. But just just rides better than I do, <laughs> so <laughs> it was good that he was on the 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 less desirable bike. But anyway, on a bike like this, if it had 19-inch front wheel and 17 inch rear, it would be a lot easier to ride through that kind of sand. Now I didn't get involved in that sort of extreme sand sort of situation, but you know, I would have like a couple hundred feet of sand. And so, you know, I'd have to get on the gas every time, kind of grip my teeth and go, okay, keep it straight, keep it going, lean back, you know, And but right. I made it every time. And I never had any big drama like, oh, I'm gonna fall, oh, and I saved it. You know, it was just like, it did it. And so right. you just have to say, yeah, it's heavy, yeah, it, it's not going to have that snappy throttle. You just have to roll, you know, just to get on. You, you don't even have to roll on the throttle. You don't get on the throttle. It's going to roll itself on, <laughs> you know. What? It's not going to instantly react. And go. Rrr. It's just going to go, okay, oh, you want to go? Well, let's, we'll consider going now. Okay, I'm going now. How does that feel? Would you like some more? Okay. And eventually, it'll get there. You know, it just takes a while to get there. Like I said, it'll go 100 miles an hour, which is pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and another Place that you can ride the KLR 650S that makes this bike a great one. If somebody who just wants to commute to work, they have made a bike that is a great commuter bike because it has a fairing, uh, it's low to the ground, you put your feet down, but you're still sitting up high enough that you're like have kind of a decent view of the road because you know your hands are up because of the bars, so you have a totally upright seating position. You know, a sport bike may actually be higher, but then if you're leaning forward, that drops your head. So this puts you in right. a, 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 you know, a pretty good view of the world and, you know, it's easy to handle relatively speaking, you know, 450 isn't excessively heavy for a, a street bike. Now, again, you're not, you're not gonna have that throttle response that you're used to or you think of when you think of a 650, like compared to a Ninja 650, Kawasaki Ninja 650, this thing is a slug. I mean, it <laughs> would be gone yeah. and, and everybody goes, Oh, wait a minute, hold on, wait for me, you know, but it, it, It would still still be a great, it's a great urban city bike. I mean, you could take it, you know, on, on, you know, tight uh, streets, you know, nudge between things, go up curbs, go down the sidewalk if you need to. Uh, If there's a little sneaky trail through the park that you need to get over here and there's a lot of traffic, nobody's looking, the bike's quiet. You know, it's not like this big, loud thing. You just kind of, oh, just kind of amble over here and then pop over out. You know, the bike's, you know, is a friendly looking bike. You know, it's got the fairing, right. it's, clean. you know, it, it's it's not a threatening looking like KTM ready to race type bike or a Honda CRF, that uh, 450 RL. This is a bike that looks like, oh, wow, that guy's having fun. That's cool. He's having fun. And then people don't get as upset when you bend the rules a bit. <laughs> and if you right. have a bike that looks like a problem and then they're like, what's that guy doing? He's, going, I'm calling <laughs> Yeah, yeah that
0: that's calling so you true. You. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Not that calling the police in LA is going to make any difference, but he's still just in case you'd rather not make people upset. So yeah. uh, the KLR is a super friendly bike for the rider and for the, the people spectating it. it. It doesn't have a lot of sex appeal or like people aren't going to come up and go, that bike, what an amazing bike. That is so cool. You know, <laughs> which, which I get on other bikes, you know, Yeah, if I'm on a Harley Davidson, you know, electric glide highway King, people come up to me every time I stop and go oh my god that motorcycle is incredible you know yeah. How, oh yeah. wow yeah, my yeah, no, is- this is
0: this is very utilitarian it's it, yeah. it's kind of like a, a sort of a two-wheel Jeep it's you know or, or even like the British Land Rover you know the original Land Rover that the Queen used to drive you know it's kind of beautiful in its simplicity it's it's attractive in its you know just complete lack of frills. Um, you know it just it's like I said it's utilitarian it just sort of does what it's supposed to do and does it really pretty well and it's been doing so for 30 years you know
1: yeah in fact funny that you mentioned a jeep because it was used by it may still be by the military the U.S. military had had uh, KLR650s that they used you know for reconnaissance and and I can't remember if it was that I think some of them were diesels
0: yes yeah I remember that
1: and and if I'm you know if, unless I'm completely misremembering it's been a long time I might have ridden one of those diesel versions at Camp Pendleton, you know I know I rode a KLR 650 there I just don't remember if it was the diesel version that that tells you how much how much dieselly the stock one is I, I don't remember if I was wearing riding a diesel version or not but uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's it's kind of has that feel to it so yeah it's not this sexy bike. That you buy to get people to like be impressed by what you're riding, which you know there's nothing wrong with that, and that's I always enjoy that. But it's just a, a super capable bike that uh, you know doesn't turn heads, but does what you want it to do, and 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 has an amazingly. I mean, I would ride that bike across the country. You know, I'd I'd have to pack carefully. You know, it doesn't. There's no big bags for it, although you can get a top case for it and the the side side bags from Kawasaki. But I would, from a practical standpoint, maybe if I had a truck behind me to bring my extra stuff, like all my computers and stuff, you know, I would ride across the country on that bike. From a riding standpoint, no problem.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's bombproof. This thing. Yeah. If I if I was if I was taking medical supplies into Ukraine, this is probably the bike I would do it with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it would be, it would get there. Right. You know? Exactly. And, it, and so, you know, riding across the country, you know, on back roads and stuff, it, it would just be fun. I mean, you wouldn't want to do inter, the interstate the whole way, you know, right. but you can, still, you can still cruise well into the 70s. Right. On, for sure. Without even, you know, it, it straining, you know, it's only when you start to get over 80 that the acceleration starts to get kind of slow, you know. I mean, it's not even like, not even like the motor is straining. It's just reluctant. (laughs) It's it's like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna gain those RPMs, but it's just gonna be at my pace, not the pace that you might want. But it'll get, you know, like I said, you know, if you tucked in, you could, you could cruise at 90 on flat ground, no wind against you. You know, tuck in behind the fairing, you could cruise at 90 on that bike. So. That's pretty cool because that means that in the, when you in the 70 mile per hour range, 70 to 80, that it's not, you know, there's no big effort for the bike. And it, like I said, and then the ability when you get into whatever town or city, the bike's easy to handle and not like this big behemoth. And it's just it's just a, a great motorcycle. Right. Right. One one question
0: I did have, um, I, I see from the stickers on the fairing that it's an, it's got ABS. So, are you able to are you able to turn the ABS off if you if you do go off road on it?
1: Uh, no, but uh, there is a non ABS version if you if that really matters. Now, I, I had the ABS version and it wasn't a problem off road. So, oh, okay. however, however intrusive it is, it wasn't intruding enough to, to to you know. I felt it once in a while, mostly on the front, and off road. You you don't mind ABS in the front off road. It's in the, because you don't really want to skid the front wheel. It's the rear wheel where sometimes you want to drag it and just kind of drag things along. But the front, you know, it you came in once in a while, and, but it was like, oh, that's cool. No problem. You know, and and so, and on the street, it never comes in. You know, the brakes are not super strong. Uh, you know, any, any off-road brakes are always going to be a, a little wanting to somebody riding on street, you know, because you can't have street kind of aggressiveness off-road. No, 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 of course. Yeah. You know, so you need to have that kind of, you know, it's, you know. It's, it's an easy bike to ride for somebody who is new to motorcycle riding. And and this, you know, normally I wouldn't recommend a 650 to somebody new, and I still kind of wouldn't. But this one, you know, I might say, can I get the Kale, get the Versus 300. That's That would probably, you know, be a good, better bike to get started on. But this one, you could start on it because it's so low to the ground you know, and you wouldn't feel intimidated by that. And certainly the throttle response isn't going to, you know, I mean, anybody can whiskey throttle and that's not good, but you have a lot of forgiving aspects of that motor. I mean, it will forgive any sort of accidental throttle input. You're like, Oh yeah. Okay. You didn't really, <laughs> do that, did you? We'll get there. So it's cool. And, and, you know, once you kind of accept that as part of the, of what you're riding which is always true of any motorcycle. And people go, oh, well, it doesn't do this. Or it doesn't do that. It always drives me crazy on the, you know, we have, we will have something on Facebook or whatever, uh, you know, oh, the new, this new bike. And uh, people will squawk about it. Like the bike was designed for them and it wasn't what they wanted. And it was like, this is a bike for somebody else. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, like if we'll show an electric bike. It'll say, they'll say, well, I hate electric bikes. <laughs> it's like, well, then don't buy one. You know? <laughs> don't 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 demand that that bike be made like a gasoline powered bike because you don't like get electric bikes just accept that some people want an electric bike and they get to have one. <laughs> right. It's like the guy who rides an electric bike and and every time we we would run something on you know Facebook or and it would say the new KLR 650 goes why is it electric? I'm never going to buy a gas powered bike. That's stupid. <laughs> that, I hate the sound. It makes all that noise. Who would want something like that? And what's wrong with people? <laughs> right. <It's> like... <laughs> you know. It yeah. really, it really is funny, you know. It's like, yeah. hey, not every bike is for you. And for me, almost every bike is for me. That's my the best part about my job is that I really do like to ride every sort of motorcycle. And so I don't look at one and go, oh, that's so stupid. Wow, I don't want to do that. You know. You know, it's like, oh, this—that's that's how it is. Oh, I can't wait to find out what that's like. You know, and, and so if you're listening and you get mad about other bikes that aren't what you like, expand what you like, and then you'll see it and you'll go, wow, that's cool, and that's a much more fun way to live your life. Right. So,
0: or buy anyway. something else. Uh, the last last thing last thing I wanted to ask you was, obviously, well, not obviously, but I, I'm I assume that it's relatively inexpensive. Do oh, you- it costs one
1: hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> oh, that's wrong it's actually six thousand eight hundred ninety nine dollars was a little off on that i was just going off the top of my head there <laughs> right. uh, yeah 68.99 which which is cool you so know less
0: than less than seven grand so that's very inexpensive for you know what is a full-size motorcycle
1: a full-size motorcycle that you can ride across the country yeah. or around the world yeah you know yeah. you know that's that's pretty cool and uh you know you have a, a there's a lot of Accessories and things available for it, and there's a huge number of people that have ridden KLRs. So you always have people who can help you out and, and give you advice, and and it's uh you know it, it's cool. And oh, I, I just realized looking at the spec sheet that I made a mistake. It's a rear tire. This is something that I, I I should have known. It's a 17 inch. So and that probably has always been that way. Uh, this is a throwback, and this is one that you know you really have to have been around for a while. There was a time. When they actually had 17-inch rear wheels on dirt bikes, just so you could have the the the, the higher profile tire. It was the same old thing where the, the rim is smaller, but the outer circumference of the tire was the same as an 18. And just like on the motocross bikes now, they have 19-inch rear wheels, but it's a low profile tire. So the, the 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 circumference of the tire has it doesn't change. But anyway, this has a 17-inch rear rim, which will be Limit you on some level of what kind of tires you can put on it. But, you know, if if you're, if you want street legal tires, that's still, that's still plenty. You know, there's still plenty to choose from again, like the Dunlop uh, D606 that I mentioned, which is a good knobby ish tire. It's uh, DOT legal and, and, you know, something you're not going to tear apart on the street. Uh, you can put that on here and, and you're, and you're good to go.
0: So, okay. all right. So it's, so it's got a 21 inch front and a 17 rim
1: yeah, a little odd, but again, it's an old bike. You know, it's 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 like something that they thought of, you know, in the 1980s, and uh, that's still, you know, they just didn't didn't change that, you know, because if they did, people, go, oh, what are you doing that for, you know? So, but they have all the cooling and everything else, and and they've tested it that way, and and uh, you know, it, again, for what you you don't need to have like motocross rubber on it. So the 17 isn't really going to be a big restrictive, but I would, I still wish you maybe, maybe we'll see this in the future. And they're listening and go, how does he know that that there'll be a a version with a 19 inch front wheel that would, that would be a pretty cool thing. But uh, as it is, the bike super great price. And part of that is because it has the 17 inch wheel and nothing has changed, you know, the frame, all this stuff, you know, they're stuck with what they know and what they have. Uh, they, you know, they made some refinements here and there, but it's still the same basic, especially the motor, you know, outside of the EFI. So, you know, they've, the guy who originally designed the KLR way back in the 1980s really was a, like a genius, you know, he, he designed something that has that sort of staying power. I mean, think about like a super bike from the 1980s being around now, you'd be like, oh, what? I can't ride this. <laughs> Yeah. This is a joke, you know. And uh, you know, I mean the this the Suzuki's they have the K five, the is that it? The motor, the the GSX. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, the original
0: K five is in the GSXS isn't it? But,
1: but that's still I a mean, first century motor, right?
0: Uh yeah, yeah, early two thousand early two. You know, that's
1: not a nineteen eighties motor. No, no, no. And and people talk about that motor as being some sort of like archaic thing, although it still works great you know fantastic yeah yeah so anyway the guy who designed this you know he he earned his pay and he's he's a hero at kawasaki i'm sure for the amount of money they made these bikes over over 30 plus years of selling them
2: yeah. so
1: yeah i think that covers it all right well it sounds sounds terrific
0: sounds like uh sounds like a great bike a great bike at a great price yeah all right mm-hmm. hey thanks don appreciate your insight sure. as always
1: Thank you. I always love giving it. I love talking about motorcycles and that's and I love talking about it with you.
0: <laughs> In the second segment, associate editor TJ Adams chats with Maddie Patterson. Maddie started out as an umbrella girl on the MotoGP grid, but there's a lot more to Maddie than just good looks. She's bright, articulate and a really good creative writer. Ultimately, she's managed to parlay those talents into becoming a journalist. Maddie's driving force is helping others, and she's done everything from adopting a donkey, mentoring young up-and-coming racers, and advocating for rider safety. Significantly, she and her husband raised money for the Ukraine and made several trips to the war zone, carrying in much needed medical supplies. So there's a lot to be admired about Maddie Patterson including her survival from a life-changing accident. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoyed this episode.
2: So you're a MotoGP journalist, and was that on the agenda when you were at school,
3: thinking of which career you were going to do? Nope. My mum sent me a bunch of photos from when I was a little girl. And I was like, wow, I wonder what she would think of me now. Because when I was a little girl, all I wanted to do was help people or like be a veterinarian or, you know, I didn't really motorsport was never on the ever. You know, it was something we were around. Like I remember it being around my family, um, but it wasn't something that I ever took an interest in or was really ever introduced to, more more to the point. So it's really weird now as an adult. And I, I think about my childhood self a lot. And I'm like, would what would she think of all of this stuff? And like even a journalist in loose terms for me is such a odd thing to call myself because it's like, that's not, it was never on my to-do list. You know, I wasn't going to be a journalist. I didn't really know what I wanted to be. I know when I was little, I just wanted to help people and animals. I loved that.
2: So you didn't excel in in English at school?
3: I did. No, English, weirdly, mathematics, I sucked at. I was horrible at maths um English was my best subject and it wasn't until I became sort of a young adult and numbers had value that I became really good at maths which is how I ended up in sales because to me numbers on a page with no value mean anything as soon as you give them a value it's like I'm all over that yeah but uh, yeah and then I, I fell into sales and marketing and it was all quite a natural progression really I started in sales and then I ended up sort of leading marketing projects and I remember my boss for a long time would tell me I write really good copy like I was always good at copywriting and it just it kind of came naturally and then that, I guess that's how I fell down the journalism hole I think that's why you
2: probably feel as though you're faking it because when something comes to you naturally you can't believe that other
3: people are unable
2: to to do the same as you
3: I have to remind myself sometimes it's really weird you're, you're always your own biggest critic and I have to remind myself like no you've made some horrible choices but you've also made some brilliant ones and they've all of those choices have made you this weirdly in some odd way well-rounded person um so yeah like I'm proud of myself but it's a very it's still bizarre to me I'm like I have no idea how I ended up here none (laughs) and how
2: we ended up in Italy together that's the funny thing we were on a trip for all to do with motorcycles we were there you know um checking out a touring company Moto California and that's how we met so when I first met you I mean I'd already read some of your articles and you are a fantastic creative writer you write in your storytelling is the sort of thing that I really want to read and I had enjoyed and when you introduced yourself and, and you immediately sort of Maddie hellos and then Mrs Maddie Patterson I married Simon Patterson I thought okay so you are the wife of Simon Patterson is that is that is what is defining you You know, I was like, don't mention that because it seemed like you you would qualify in your position, as it were. And I thought, huh.
3: I get that. And I think I'm such a double-edged sword because a lot of the time I'm like, okay, well, I have a name as well. And I get it a lot. And usually when people like to speak negatively about me, not knowing me, they'll refer to things that they don't like. So they'll refer to my husband's very, you know, staunch stance on things like safety. And then that sort of reflects negatively on me. Um, and I, it, it's a weird thing because when I meet fans, I feel like I don't have to say I'm Simon's wife or anything like that. But when I meet people in the industry, I know it's probably going to come up anyway. So I often like to say, oh, yeah, I work, you know, I was a brand marketing manager at Motorcycle Sports, I'm a freelance rider. And then I, I like to sort of, it's more about testing the waters. It's like going, oh, yeah, my husband's a MotoGP journalist. Like, I don't like to say it outwardly. I just sort of like to see where it goes and um, in a polite way. And, you know, I think as a journalist, you get that. People don't always like you. They don't know you. They wouldn't know you from a bar of soap, but they have an opinion of you based on your your opinion of things and your, your stand on things. So, yeah, being Simon's wife can be difficult sometimes but for the most part it's not. But well, I think you hit the spot
2: there when you said people's opinion of journalists for instance is based on that journalist's opinion they don't know them and if they like that person's opinions then generally they like that reporter that moto journalist. It's really based on their opinions um, which is a funny thing Simon is very outspoken straight to the point.
3: Yes but he's also a really smart And switched on journalists. Like he, he, I have to say, like you know, not just because he's my husband, and and genuinely, as far as his journalism goes, people like to imagine that everybody hates him and we're so disliked, and it's so far from the truth. Because actually, if you work at a team and you want something said and you want something heard, you go as an anonymous source to the journalist you like, and more times or not, it's the journalist that gets stuff done, Um, and that tends to be Simon. He he kind of has a reputation for being ahead of the story. And, yeah, I mean, I'm not not everyone's going to like me, and I'm fine with that. i'm I'm so confident and happy with who I am in a person. I don't think I need to prove myself to people that are not you know of value in my life, you know, and i I mean that in a good way. I think as a creative person, as a writer, as a journalist, you start to carve out your own kind of belonging and your own following. And it's taken me a long time to get comfortable with that because it's really difficult to say what you mean and mean it and i remember sort of in the beginning of my career i was very shy about you know having an opinion because it felt like if i picked one side or another or or, you know something completely left field people were going to judge me for that and ultimately they are i've just come to turn
2: you have to be bold because people do like you or dislike you and we want to be liked so you have to put yourself out there really when you're a journalist.
3: Exactly. And I think it's more than being liked now. I'm at the stage in my career and in my lifestyle, in my relationships where being liked is not my priority anymore. It's it's just really not because I think my intellect, what I know about my job, what I know about marketing and business gives me not only you know people liking me, but respecting me. And it means that if there's something they they disagree with me on, they're not going to, you know, hate me for it. They're going to say, actually, have you considered looking at, at it like this? And it's been able to have those conversations that I probably couldn't have had two years ago without going off like a firecracker. Whereas now I'm like, oh, thanks. Like, yeah, that's a really good viewpoint. I don't agree completely, but I see what you see now. I see things differently. So I think that's all It's all growth and that's young, you know, I've made so many embarrassing mistakes in my life that I wish I hadn't have made and things I hadn't have said, but all of that embarrassment means that I can now see things better and speak better and and have more of a clear tone of voice on the things that I believe in.
2: Yeah. It gives you a more of an all rounded uh, point of view. Yeah, exactly. And before we leave the subject of hubby, um, you're the only people I know to have actually got married (laughs) in Gretna Green.
3: (laughs) Yes. But um, we met in, I think it was like June or July 2019. We were at the Barcelona Spanish Grand Prix, Catalonia Grand Prix, sorry. Don't, yeah, that one. And um, I was, at that time, I was working as a promotional model. So I think that year I was working with either Tech 3 or Tech 3, I think it was, in Moto2 and GP. I was a broly dolly. Like I'm not even ashamed of it. I knew what I wanted in life. I wanted to be like the people around me and the best way to do it was just to take the job that I could get. And, um, I had fun. I loved that job. And I met Simon at like an aperitivo on the Saturday. I think it was, and it was, it was the Saturday because I was supposed to fly home that night, but I'd had about four or five drinks already and completely missed my flight. Totally (laughs) gone. Forgot it. Didn't remember. And, um, we're sitting there and I think my friend Mika introduced me to him and said, Oh, this is Simon Patterson. He works at MCN at the time. And I went, Oh, cool. Nice to meet you. Like you're a journalist, blah, blah, blah. He goes, Oh, I know who you are. I follow you on Instagram. And then he was quite cheeky and he goes, I don't usually follow umbrella girls on Instagram. And I was like, why? You just prefer to look at them without them knowing, like, we're not stupid either (laughs) that pot. I know what I'm good at. (laughs) And um, yeah, we just, we became really good friends after that. And we would speak quite regularly and you know, he was my best friend essentially. Um, Then COVID happened and I at this time had been offered a job in MotoGP, couldn't take it because of COVID. I got stuck in Australia for two and a half years. I had all of these like extreme things happen in my life. Like when it rains, it pours. Um, And we were kind of, we never said we were together. We were just planning life, I guess. Um, and then after COVID, after lockdown, I jumped on a plane. I came to Belfast. First time seeing this guy in like two and a half, three years. So much had changed since then. And um, yeah, we went from being two and a half years apart to living in a motorhome together for a whole year. So talk about like one extreme to the next. And we, he asked me to marry him in July. Of last year, I said yes, and in December, on December seventeenth, we got married at Gretna Green, and we had ten people, small wedding, lots of booze, three three day three day debauchery, basically is what it was. But I'm like, I look back at my life, I'm like, wow, just I, there's never a, a calm time or a relaxed time. It's you know, this is what we're doing now, and yeah, I mean, we thought about it, and I was like, do you want a big wedding? Like he's Irish, so that means that half the country would have to come. And I just went, no, that sounds horrible.
2: Surprisingly, you are Australian. You don't sound Australian at all. So you started life in Sydney.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I grew up in um. It's I. It's so bizarre. Like I still feel like, like I sound very Australian, but maybe not. That um. Uh, yeah, I grew up in in a little place called Bargo, which is about two hours south of Sydney. It's a really tiny town. It's famous for um the discovery of the lyrebird, which is on our five cent piece, and the koala. Um, yeah, I grew up down there with my mum and my dad until I was about twelve, and you know had some separations and whatnot and um, I moved sort of to Sydney when I was quite young. I wasn't quite finished school yet, and I started working and still completing my high school uh certificate and yeah, I mean, I spent six or seven years in the city I lived in the, in the inner suburb inner suburb, so I lived in Glebe and Leichhardt and I miss Sydney sometimes it's a beautiful place it's not much like Australia and I I do quite miss home but um, yeah I'm I'm a country girl at heart and I think that's why Ireland speaks to me really well because this is basically a big country town wherever you are it's always a country town and I have a donkey and you know that's my life now (laughs) I have a donkey and a dog and a small house on a plot of land in Northern Ireland and it's not Sydney I do miss the sun but it is a beautiful place to live too. Sounds idyllic. So you have a donkey. That's
2: that's not kind of your usual pet.
3: <laughs> I don't know if like anyone in the US will know this song. It's called Dominic the Christmas Donkey. And it was, we play it on the radio nonstop at Christmas time here. And all the kids love it. And we're all singing Dominic the Christmas Donkey. And I'm driving singing this song just, I think it was like two weeks before my wedding. So beginning of December, I'm driving singing this song and I see this donkey. And I am like elated, like a little child. I'm like, oh my God, a donkey, like had to pull over the car. The kids were with me We're talking, like had to go and see this donkey and her name is Ginger. And the reason why we named her, that was all I had in the car was Ginger Biscuits. So we're feeding this donkey Ginger Biscuits. And um, she was really neglected. Sadly, she had been alone in her field for like 10 years and her, her owners had kind of forgotten that they owned her in her- their old age um so we started to see her every day and she she's just like a big dog and it's so weird because from when we first met her to now she's totally different animal she's definitely my donkey you know she's my baby and she knows that and I know that and we have a very special little relationship I don't it's so weird like she's just the best animal I've ever met I love her and she's 27 years old they live till anywhere between 50 and 60 years old so that's why there's such um there's so many donkey sanctuaries around the world because they're an animal that get forgotten about because people don't realize how long they live for. So you spoke to the elderly owners or,
2: or how did you come about sort of rescuing for your own?
3: i have been going to see her every day and while I was traveling for work I'd made all the kids in the family and my mother-in-law go and see this donkey every day and um it kind of <laughs> We live in a small place, so it got out, and everyone's like, hi I that we Australian, I you know that we Australian, I the one, the one that lives in Instraban. I that we Australian, she's beaten a wee donkey." Like this was just the, the the tune of the town. So everybody knows who I am because there's no Australians here. And eventually, it got back to the sister of the original owners, and she sort of um, seeks me out and was like, "So I'm so thankful, like." this is amazing. I've been doing the best and she's quite old as well and doing the best I can and let's get the paperwork done. And, you know, she's clearly your animal. And yeah, that was just how that unfolded. So now I am the proud owner of a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) How cute. (laughs) And
2: Ireland generally, you're you're, you're based in the countryside, but uh, what's your nearest big
3: town? So I'm in Northern Ireland. So I'm about 10 minutes from Derry, Derry, Londonderry in the north. Um, so it's not too far from here at all and about an hour and a half from Belfast and three hours from Dublin on a good day if there's no traffic. <laughs> so you get a bit of town life
2: when you want it, being from yeah. A, yeah, the Sydney area. I know you started in the country, but I understand you're missing like the big, the big city thing.
3: I kind of miss like the just the the random events that you would get invited to in the city. I miss like having a client calling me saying, I'm having drinks or I'm having a networking event or know we're hosting this would you like to come and i miss those kinds of things because you don't really get that in like suburban ireland it's not it's the the closest you'll get to it is like the fox cricket club going we won do you want to come and drink like yeah that'll do (laughs) so you're surrounded by green fields everywhere it's so green it's luscious it's beautiful and sun's been really nice lately actually even though it's the second month of autumn uh sorry yeah autumn yeah october but um it is a beautiful place to live. A wee bit cold, but it's beautiful.
2: I'd love to go one day. It's funny, I've not been to Ireland. I've been to quite a few places, but not to Ireland yet.
3: Yeah. What what century do you want to start in? Because there's so much to learn here. It's crazy and it's a beautiful place. There's really nowhere like it. And I've lived in, in England and, and visited Scotland on several occasions, but Ireland is a special place now. it's It's very much my home and there's nowhere quite like it.
2: Let's um, talk about your adventure to Ukraine. So you raised money, first of all, and you picked up whatever you thought was necessary. I don't know how you found out what was needed most, but you took aid across the borders yourselves. So you made sure everything actually got to the, you know, the people who need it and you went to Ukraine.
3: Yeah. Um, So I think for me, this is quite a a personal, and I I don't want to say mission or anything like that. It's just, you know, my family are all, Eastern European as well, and and my cousins still live in Hungary and and other parts of Eastern Europe. So, um, and also for Simon, this was quite a a personal endeavor, um, having suffered some some very close losses with this continuing war. Um, So we sort of collectively put our brains together and said, what can we do, you know, that's gonna raise, that's gonna help sort of alleviate some kind of suffering for our friends and our family um, in Ukraine and what we discovered was um that we work in an amazing industry and we know all the right people to ask for the right things so we started raising uh, fundraising through our connections in MotoGP and world superbike and british superbike and tt um we got a lot of donations from the riders who were so kind to us and they autographed all of their their pieces that they gave to us and we bid them for auction on ebay um as well as charitable donations and anything else that we could really do to raise money for this Mm A friend of ours works in the army in Ukraine um and he said to us like we need this this is what we need we need medical supplies we're we're suffering we need this and you know I think a lot of people believe and I can understand why that there's so much getting transported to Ukraine in, in terms of aid and 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 sort of military goods but most people on the ground don't have things like bandages or you know tourniquets or syringes, and these are just little things that make all the difference. And you know it's the hardest thing to get a hold of because everybody wants some. So we loaded our motorhome with all of this stuff, a couple of generators for our friends in Odessa, which had been really badly decimated by missiles. We drove all the way there, and it was ten thousand kilometers over, I think, four days. And we did this between the Portomel test and the Portomel round, so we had a week off so we drove from Portugal to Ukraine and Ukraine and back and it was just that's manic wow oh <laughs> that was only the first one I think Simon's done it um again since then and we're planning to go back in the third second or third week of December as well um so yeah it was just a a crazy trip but I think for us you know it's quite personal and it's touched us in ways that we could never have imagined and it's when you get phone calls from your friends and you get, you know, mail and emails saying, you know, they haven't come home or they're not coming home. And it's quite a a hard thing. You know, my cousins in Hungary as well. They work with displaced children out of Ukraine and sort of rehoming them in Hungarian families. And it's just it's been something that has been quite passionate and, and close to our hearts for multiple reasons. Um, and we will do it again. We will do it again. And Simon, this will be Simon's fourth trip at the end of the year. This will be my second.
2: Yeah, to actually physically do it yourselves. I mean, it's um it's a strenuous thing to do, and it's also probably scary. I would try and avoid countries that are at war myself.
3: Yeah, I mean, yes, it, it is scary. And I, I'm I'm not gonna sit here and say it's not, because it is. I think the places that we go to, we're quite fortunate. We're led by people on the ground who are very aware of where we should and shouldn't be. Like you'll go through checkpoints. You'll, you're very much aware of the fact that there's a war on. You never, you know, despite the fact that there are people going about their daily lives, they're opening their bakeries, they're selling coffee, you know, they're trying to get on with their lives. Um, you you can't sort of avoid the fact, the glaring fact that there's a war happening. Um, But given our connections, we generally know where we are. We know we where we're supposed to go, where we shouldn't be going. Um, we're quite fortunate to have people that have really helped us get there and at the end of the day it's not about us it's about them and that's why we're going you know that's that's just no a no-brainer for me did you end up under fire and yeah we um we did have to go into a bomb shelter for I think it was about three hours and I can't remember the name of the, the town we were in I think it was about an hour and a half or two hours north of Odessa so we're heading back towards Poland at this point um and we were in a bomb shelter for like three-ish hours and it is the scariest thing I think you get this like blaring alarm sound on your phone and throughout the city center where we were staying um and you just have to climb down all of these flights of stairs and we were staying in a hotel you know it was a normal thing best you can do and you get this glaring alarm and then you're downstairs in like this it wasn't a new bunker either it had been there since the cold war so it can like it paints a picture for you of like how turbulent this place has been for so long um, and how deeply it's affected the people that live there and yeah we were down there for three hours we came out of the bunker nothing had changed it was all good we got in our motorhome and we just drove we drove and we did not stop until we got to Poland and yeah it was it was scary I mean like it's scary because you don't know why it's happening. You don't know if there's gonna be a missile launched on the suburb that you're in or the one next door or if it's just a plane taking off in Belarus. Um, because they'll sound the alarm for that. Um, so yeah, it was quite intimidating and you know, I remember being in this bunker with a bunch of literally fifteen year olds who were working at McDonald's and they'd come into the bunker and, and they were just sat there like, Well, this is normal for us, and we started Talking a little bit, and it was just crazy to me that teenage, this is the life that teenagers are living. Like, this is normal to them. Normal life, but they have all that going on. Yeah. Yeah. It was just insane. I can't imagine what it would be like. Even just a, a tiny experience of it doesn't paint the picture.
2: No, by the luck of where we're born, eh? And what's the country itself like? I mean, it's not going to be green and lush like Ireland, but what kind of landscape are you looking at as you're driving through?
3: It is honestly a really beautiful place (laughs) like despite the fact that there's you know crossbars and barbed wires and trenches dug out and people in in you know khaki pants everywhere it is an incredibly beautiful place and it has such a a, you know trepid history as well um the people are so friendly and kind and the roads the roads are amazing mind you I know that there's a war on but they have some of the best roads in Europe that I've ever driven on um it is a beautiful place and I I want to go again and I wish I could go again as a tourist and, and sort of be part of the, the future and not what's happening right now. And I hope in the future that these things, you know, start to settle down and change and that, you know, people can have their lives back. Um, but it is, it's, it's a gorgeous place. It's very sparse. You feel like you're driving for ages. Um, but then you see these like beautiful mountains and snow and, you know, gray and sunshine and some things are, quite intimidating like while we were in Odessa Odessa, there were Russian warships in the harbour which was quite you know that's I think for me that's where it clicked where I was it was very like they were there to intimidate that's what they were doing and that was quite scary but you know their history is just stunning and I, I would love to do it again I can't wait to go back and see more and I feel like I'm learning so much more about Ukraine every day.
2: As you're going again let's mention the fundraising how can we ask people to donate to your um, supplies and equipment that you're taking.
3: You can find all of our donation links on our personal pages. So mine's usually my Instagram bio and it's in my um, Twitter bio as well. And it's the same for Simon and it's just called Racing for Ukraine. Um, We add new items that MotoGP riders and World Superbike riders have donated to us on a regular basis on our eBay store as well. The links are there for all of that. Um, You can make donations via PayPal, bank transfer, whatever works for you.
2: I'll put some information in the show notes, but that's great for MotoGP fans to hear they can get gear, MotoGP gear, still people, the MotoGP paddock are still donating items and signing items.
3: Yeah, they haven't stopped and they, um, they, they're really with us. And I, I'm so grateful for it because it's really, it's made such a difference to the lives of so many people that we know. Um, and I don't think they realize that themselves, but the, what they have done has helped us immensely.
2: Well, we sit here in our cushy homes, not even having an inkling of how other people are just needing such what we consider normal, basic things, things we take for granted. Exactly. You fitted this all in between MotoGP and work events. Um, I know you go to the Isle of Man many times. So, first of all, are you so
3: are you committed to go to every MotoGP race? I'm not, and I have um, really changed how I work in the last year, because last year I went to every single round by the end of the year, I was just like, this can't be my life. (laughs) This is not, you know, I I know a lot of people will tell me, oh, you're so fortunate and you're not grateful. And you live a life that so many people wish they lived. I'm like, yeah, but I've done this racing cycle. You know, ultimately that was my first full-time year in MotoGP, but I've done this racing cycle for so many years and I want to see my friends i want to see my nieces and my nephews i want to have a little bit of a life outside of you know where did peco finish on the podium because there is so it, at the end of the day it's my life and i love it but it's just motorcycle racing you know that there are other important things that matter to me so fortunately i'm now not going to every race next year i've selected the ones i want to go to and why they're valuable to me um that doesn't mean i don't have an opinion on the racing so look out on twitter because i'll probably talk about it but um yeah it has been a full-time commitment for the last sort of 12, 12 months 18 months and it's like a storm that you sort of get caught up in I mean that's the thing it's like you say you say one thing and then you look back and you're like oh maybe I shouldn't have said that and do I continue with this and I just get to the end of the day and my my Twitter feed no matter how dramatic I might seem I don't actually think about I do not, th- I do not sit there and go, Oh my God, user one, two, three said that I'm, I'm a bitch. Like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. Cause it's not real. And when the history of the world is written, where do you think motorcycle racing is going to come in? Really? You know, it's just, it's a sport, enjoy it, have fun, but also like it is, it is a career and it is a serious career. So when I have something to say that, you know, has a little bit of weight to it, I'm not saying it for no reason.
2: Oh, but that's your point of difference. That's why I love reading your stuff because you come straight out with with what you feel. It's a passionate thing that you put forward. Yeah, I mean,
3: sometimes I wish I would think before I speak, but okay, we're not all born with, with, I'm getting better at it. There are some things I've said sort of in the last year and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have, maybe I should have just been a little bit more kind. And, but the, again, like I said before, they're just lessons that you learn and you don't do it the same way twice. So you try not to, but at the end of the day, I still think the sport, it It is, it's it's a whole lot of money for a whole lot of people. And there are things that can be done better and should be done better for that reason alone.
2: Yes, no, don't change that. I like I like the way you just put yourself forward. Um, I mean, I, I was reading about your um, noting the lack of um, facilities for people who are disabled. Now we as able people can easily use any facility that put forward for a disabled person, but you were quite passionate and out there about having facilities.
3: Yeah. And I think the reason why I am is I've had friends that have been, you know, how do I, let me, let me place this in a, in a far better context. We work in motorcycle racing and some of your heroes and my heroes are now permanently disabled because they sustained injuries in a sport we all love. Um, That's one thing. Secondly, we, we live in a modern society where things should be accessible to people you know, who have been injured at work, who do have disabilities, who do have trouble with accessibility. And I'm not quite sure how in a sport like ours where we can bang on about having an FIM women's commission and we can have an FIM commission for the consumer, as in the guy that buys a motorcycle from a dealer, we don't have an accessibility and disability commission, but we currently live in this society and we work in this sport where inclusivity is the top of our mind. If that was the truth and truly the truth, we would be doing something for people who have disability and accessibility problems and issues. And we don't. And I think it's I for me personally, you can hear me getting kind of worked up about it. I don't understand how we don't because we want to bang on about how inclusive we are and how great this is and you know, women are welcome here. Well like how about everyone else? How about people that have blockers because of something that's happened to them that we also perpetuate as in our sport? You know, things like that really frustrate me and it's, it's, I'm not quite sure how the message hasn't got across yet. And that's something I'm really passionate about and I'm working on and I am petitioning the FIM to create a Disability and Accessibility Commission because we have one for everything else. So why don't we have one that actually is about genuine and true inclusivity for people who do have disability and accessibility problems so
2: you're here you're looking with new young fresh eyes and you see this all the old habits that kind of trundle on we just don't see that sort of thing like a lot of things in life it takes somebody like yourself and then somebody like yourself to actually do something about it
3: yeah and I think you know it's not it's not that people don't mean to see but what they don't know they can't what they don't see they don't know you know and I, I think in a sport like MotoGP or World Superbike, where we're supposedly going to the best first-class facilities in the world for motorcycle racing, and this is not sort of a primary thought but often an afterthought, um, you know, recently and, and on a regular basis, unfortunately, I see journalists and other staff in the paddock with accessibility issues having to use things like the service lift for the caterers because the disability access lifts aren't working and they haven't worked for four years but we have a genuine need for those facilities and they're built into those facilities. So why aren't they working? But we, we're, we're told that this is first-class racing at first-class facilities. And, you know, I I only need to think to the motorcycle racers that my dad grew up idolizing and, and I sort of grew up idolizing who are now, you know, don't have the same access that they did before as a result of this very sport. And there's no representation for them either. And that just, it doesn't sit well with me that we can sort of power praise these people, but then not do exactly what they and others like them need. I just, it, it really, it perplexes me. Interesting. Yeah. And enough for you to actually try to fix it, which is awesome. It shouldn't be that hard. It's just, it shouldn't be that difficult. And, you know, God forbid touch wood. It's not me one day or, you know, I've done, I've, I've spent time in a wheelchair before. I can tell you, it's horrible. And I, I just, and I realized then that the world wasn't built for me, and I hate to think that in our sport when we're not thinking of that because it's it's prevalent. You know, I think, and I, I really think road racing opened my eyes to that in a lot of ways. Um, because usually when I go road racing, it's not an afterthought. These these are things that are built into our community for people that have suffered injuries in our sport. And there's lots of access, there's seating availability, there's disabled and accessed toilets. It's such, it's, it's simple things that we should already know. And like I said, if you don't see it, you don't know about it. And sometimes I kind of get sick of being a carrot and I just like to be a stick occasionally. Um, you know, people, people hear me when I bang on the door. So.
2: <laughs> and you're around, you're in the MotoGP paddock obviously a lot. All the time and you are a warm friendly person so you've made lots of friends <laughs> so i want to know who your favorite racer is
3: um i i always think my favorite racer is always going to be joan zarko and i have like the sweetest soft spot for him in my heart and i always will and he knows why that's quite a, a personal relationship outside of you know our, our working relationship um I love Zarko that he could do no wrong in my eyes and I think after Motegi this weekend he needs our love and support because he should he should have finished in sixth I don't know what that was about but he should have finished in sixth place <laughs> um but uh no I I love the the Frenchman he's he's a very very good guy all all jokes aside he's a wonderful person and he yeah he's someone that if you've got a problem he he's kind of like are you okay he just notices him and I think Bez Bez is the other one Bez is Quite a funny guy. He's such a nice human being and his family are so lovely. And I've spoken to them multiple times and had drinks and dinner with them completely by accident, not knowing that they were Bez's family. Um, and now we look for each other on the weekend to say hello. And it's really funny if I don't go to Bez's debrief, he'll come out of his debrief, sort of moving through the media center, and I'll always look up and he'll be looking and he'll find me and he'll be like, Ciao. He always you know, makes the effort so he's I think they're my top two favorites just
2: he always looks so focused there's always seems to have his mind on the job you look at him in in the press interviews he's really he's there
3: he is and he's so aware I think it's it's he's he can handle pressure really well and I think for someone in his position that's something you would need because you know you get this backing from something like VR46 Academy and, and Valentino Rossi himself and that comes with its own level of celebrity. So to be able to handle that, and I think as a credit to most, if not all the VR46 boys that are still part of the of the academy, they've handled that into sort of GP racing really, really well. Um, and I think it shows by the people that aren't in the academy anymore and who used to be and who have had to learn the hard way and the people who are. Um, and he's very switched on he's a smart smart boy too like he's one of those people that just say things and you're like I never expected that to come out of your mouth um yeah he is he's laser focused lovely kid and just a really nice person in general
2: do they often all get together do you find that you're you're often somewhere and you've got sort of maybe almost the the whole range together do they all act like I mean I think of them as kids because I'm an old giffer but I just imagine them all having a chat and a laugh and
3: uh I almost I almost said something that my mum says to me which is back in my day because (laughs) back in my day where I started which was like you know brolly dolly I'm here and I'm working and I'm getting paid to smile like what a job back in that those days like absolutely and I think because I was in a far less um professional role in terms of what I do now I think that role was such a social you're you're the touch point between the sport and the fans and and the competitors and you are the brand essentially you're representing that brand um so I think you know a decade ago totally and I, I my relationship with riders with them was completely different as well because you go on flyaways and flyaways are the only time that you can really sort of let your hair down after a race and the Sunday night, you'd be like vodka tonic, Maddie. Go, what, what do you want to drink? And you just get to know people on a really social level. And it's so funny to me coming into this job that I have now two years ago and be like, Oh, I saw all of my old friends and all of these races and competitors and hugged them. And it was the last time I hugged them because my job and my position has completely changed and they respect that. And I think that's a really important thing too. And even 10 years ago, I was saying, I'd love to do this for a job. I want to do this for a job. And most of them supported me. And even when I write things, which might not be the most flattering, they generally come to me and laugh. And I usually pass it by them before I publish it to you as just a, heads up this is going out tonight it's everything you to me it's all on the record but I just want you to know I've published it so yeah I mean it's yeah your your career changes your position with people changes but like I was saying before the respect is the thing that I I love having now because it means so much more to me that it's from a genuine place I feel like sometimes MotoGP does a discredit to their athletes and that's because they work so hard They've got all the pressures of their sponsors, their factories. And, you know, on top of that, what they're doing now is the job itself is hard because it's not just racing anymore. And I think when you're a racer, you just want to race. And all of, there's a lot of hurdles for them. And, and in this kind of era of MotoGP, which I think will change, it will have to, um, but I feel for them, you know, because they can't just go out and have a good race. There's always like some psychoanalyst afterwards. Like, do you know how sick I am of hearing about tyres? I don't I, I don't know enough about tyres to care. It's it's the one topic that bores me. And whole shot devices and aero, and it's like, oh, can we just talk about how it felt to overtake Mark Marquez or something really actually exciting?
2: We do want some of that as well, because back in my day, which is back in the old black and white days, we could wander into the pits and see Steve Parrish and Barry Sheen and get a hug and a nudge and, you know, just... You know, find characters who were more outstanding than others, and get to know them a bit. I suppose is what I'm saying from the, from the media point of view. Now everything is more calm and calculated. So these guys, these racers nowadays, they have such an intense job because they seem to be aware the whole time of who's looking at them, what they're doing every second of the day. So I'm just trying to get a, a bit of a, an overview, a, a bit of a pinpoint view of uh, some real personalities, I guess
3: it's nice looking back on, on the last kind of 10 years and seeing how things have changed for people as well. Like Jack, you know, started as this motor three rider and Red Bull rookies and now he's a dad and he's married to the love of his life. And, you know, in saying that he's obviously got a quite a high pressure job this year as well. And he's not up to scratch, which is, is a shame. You know, there's no shame in saying that in compared to his nearest competitors, he's sort of been lagging and that's a real shame. Um, And everybody loves Jack. Jack is one of those people that can seemingly do no wrong. Even if I think he does wrong, everyone will tell me it's Jack. He can do no wrong.
2: That's because we do get a feel for his personality. We do see on some of his posts, he has typos, a bit of bad grammar, and you feel you sort of can see his love of Ruby, his wife, and they've just had a baby. And all of that goes into, you know, you want to support him and be there for him when you're watching the racing.
3: I think for me as well, like my, my happy place is probably with, like the Moto3 and Moto2 riders and a couple of the kids I manage in BSB and things as well. Um, and it's, I think it's because you can get to know them really well. You can actually have a relationship with these people who are coming into adulthood and just really want their dreams to come true. There's something so naive about I'm going to change the world. And it's it's that kind of attitude I still hope I have. I hope I carry it with me my whole life, but I see it in young people and they really want things for themselves. And it's harder when you get older, you know, and especially looking at like the modern GP crew now. First of all, everything we do is immediate. So if I just finish a debrief with someone like Jack, it's on the internet in 10 minutes. It has to be because I'm competing for airtime. And I, I have to do that. So it's not like it's getting on a plane and delivered and printed in the in the paper the next morning. It's, it's immediate. And the news cycle now is much harder than it was, you know, a long time ago because there's so little time between finding information and publishing the information um and I think sometimes that's why I like to sort of step out of MotoGP because it's just this juggernaut of information that doesn't stop and you have to remind yourself that it's not real most of this isn't real it's just a sport it's two and a half thousand people that travel together for 10 months of the year you still do have a life you just have to step out and I think everybody in that paddock kind of feels the same way from time to time because it is heavy it is a lot to go through
2: yeah it's a gladiatorial sort of arena that you're you're ensconced in there that's why I was wondering if you went to every single race because I know you have heavy commitments with BSB and with road racing so let's go back to BSB you manage some of the young guys there right from scratch
3: yeah I mean I manage in loose terms I so I'm not I'm not like a a motorcycle manager that's calling and making deals. Actually, what I'm doing is calling my kids and saying, so how do you write a contract? Hey, pretend I'm monster. How do you pitch me on sponsoring you? And we sort of discuss strategies about, you know, coming, most of the kids I look after are Australian as well, makes sense, Um, moving from Australia to the UK. How much do you need in living expenses? How much do you need to pay for your seat? Because you are going to pay for your seat in national racing. That's just the way it is. How much do you need is crash damage? How much do you need in tyres? And we sit there and we we pipeline and we, we project plan and then usually we'll land on a number. And out of that number, they need to be able to pay for their sponsorship and for their living expenses for the year. Rent, fuel, car maintenance, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that's where I come in. So I help them pitch themselves to sponsors I help them fix their social media I help them have a bit of a voice and encourage them to not be scared to be an individual which can be hard because when you're young you just want to be like everyone else and these these guys and girls so young that they have to have parents with them they'll be usually 17 18 years old um one one guy that I've looked after and he's I always call him my bubba Jacob Hatch and I met him when he was 16 and it just so happened that he was going to BSB and I was moving to the UK at the same time. And this friendship formed with him and his family. And his mum is definitely one of my best friends now, you know, someone that I call to ask advice from, or talk about life from, or, you know, you just, you develop these relationships. Um, And Jacob and I are quite close. He, he's one of those people that calls you not with anything to say, he just wants to call you. And I love that about our relationship. And what we've been able to do is sort of give him, what I've been able to do is give him confidence to go and ask, go and ask for your place. If you don't know where it is, go and find it, ask for the money. How do you pitch yourself in an email? How do you write a correct email? What is it you're selling? Um, What kind of competitor do you want to be? Where do you want to go? And we've worked really closely together on just creating this lifestyle opportunity more than anything and being able to recognize what numbers are going to cost us and what living expenses are going to cost us and he is such a well-rounded good kid and you wouldn't you wouldn't have believed that two or three years ago he was just a 16 year old 17 year old doing club racing and sort of some levels in ASBK and now he's in you know BSB he's had a couple of wins this year a couple of different podiums and he's gone from stride to stride and even when it's been really hard the person that he calls is the person in his time zone because mum and dad are at home And he's like hi 16 to 17 is a very
2: young age to be out of the, the family out of the nest out of the family home and because you are a fast rider and a and, and a racer because that doesn't always go hand in hand you can race it doesn't mean that you have any idea about the rest of all of the life skills that you need to go and do the racing
3: and that's where I feel really privileged to to be that person I think because you know it's not just life skills and paying rent it's also like the you've got to remember these are teenagers we're talking about so it's also things like i miss my girlfriend or i i want to go on a date i'm scared to ask this girl out and i know to some young people listening and maybe to some some older people listening to you they're probably like geez, give it a rest but that that's a very important thing in a young person's life because it gives them a sense of importance it helps them understand who they are and what they want out of life and their experiences that you you don't always get when you're committed to racing all the time and they're committed to this this dream of winning so you have to be able to give them some kind of confidence in a way and and encourage them to go out and make friends and encourage them to Sort of go on dates and, and little things like that because if they don't, they become quite a sheltered version of who they should be because they're not just an athlete; they're a whole human being. And when you get hyper fixated on just being an athlete, you forget all the little parts of yourself which are also important. You know, your health, your well being, your relationships, your family. Um, and I I'm I feel quite privileged to be that connector really between the two because I I in my own way have experienced commitment to racing and then forgotten about everything else and had to repair it so I, I feel very lucky that I can sort of give advice and and people can lean on me for that especially at a young age it's hard you being young's hard it is because everyone's looking at you knowing you're young but they don't actually
2: necessarily help you in growing up as it were they just expect you to get on with it and I was reading um your piece about the section about the Waynes I can't remember what it means
3: <laughs> the Waynes Wains is a northern Irish term for the kids
2: <laughs> how you would uh, even sort of mother them make them sandwiches and things that they might forget you would kind of tell them to go to the dentist and
3: <laughs> it's also for my benefit because my worst nightmare is having to sit on the mountain at tt for six hours and not have something to eat so like if we're going out on the course kids i'm bringing tomato cheese butter bread we're having sandwiches like we're not going to sit there and starve but um yeah the (laughs) iliam and jorge george um they live on the isle of man they're road racers. they're really good 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 kids and just nice people you meet people that are just really lovely and that's them and um you know, Owen Jenner was there from BSB, a couple of these other kids that I know, and I'm about a decade older than all of these boys. And I was just hanging out with them. And then Owen made like a really crude joke, you know, something like you're old enough to be my mum. And then I clapped back and I was like, stop flirting with me. Just say what you really want to say. And then they all just started calling me mum. It just stuck for the whole week. And I was like, wow, I've gone from like the sister role to the mum role. Like, oh, well, that's my that's my place in life now. <laughs>
2: And the TT, I did, that article was uh, fantastic. There's so much
3: feeling in it. Um, what, tell me the full name of the article, the article about the TT. Uh, racing Through Emotions, A Journey to the Heart of the Isle of Man TT. Yeah, that's a
2: fabulous read. I'm going to put a link for that as well in the show notes so everyone can experience your, your writing. What style of writing would you say you've got?
3: Uh, thank you. Um, I, <laughs> I would think, I would like to imagine in, in an ideal world that I'm a gonzo writer just without the drugs, with a lot less drugs. But um, yeah, that I think that piece is has weirdly become my defining piece. And it, it got me a lot of jobs and it opened a lot of doors for me. Um because I just you don't get stuff that's real sometimes that feels really authentic and is not heavily edited to something that it's not. That was a true portrayal of everything I went through that fortnight. Everything I felt and ultimately that's that comes from a kind of love for the sport my friends and I I think I said it I I, in that piece I'd give my left kidney if it meant we could go racing if it meant that there was going to be a good outcome I'd do it and um I'm I'm very proud of that piece because I think it takes more than saying what you mean I think it takes a lot to really put your your heart and emotions on the line and and to let people into that kind of depth of what you feel so that was a that was a I'm really proud of it I still am so tell us a bit more about
2: time at the TT um what's it like on the Isle of Man (laughs) you've been to so many places
3: (laughs) it's cold actually no TT this year was like stunning weather it was so warm it was sunny every day I was wearing mini skirts and having a great time um TT is a very it's a very emotional place without being emotional and I think that's why I really struggled, actually, because I didn't really know how to feel and I wasn't quite sure how people can just get on with their day, probably feeling the same way I was. Um, and it's it's crazy and I, I hate it and I love it so much. I, I can't wait to go back. It's one of those places that just captivates you because of all the danger that's involved and the height of your friendships and relationships become so pivotal there. Um, and I, I don't want to talk about it in such a dark cloud, but like, it is, it is a really hard place to be. It is a sad place to be. It can be. Um, but even in those moments where it's horrific, you feel quite safe. You feel very comfortable um, because you know, everybody around you probably feels the same way in some capacity. Um, and for me, this year, a, a friend of mine passed away and that was quite difficult. And I, it, it, I don't know how to explain it. Like it was difficult at the time because I knew that I was gonna have to tell someone and it was difficult because I felt like I might've been one of the last people that he saw and and all of these little things, you give them no thought at the time that they happen. And then it's after something tragic happens that you look back and you're like, wow, okay, I'm lining up the moments with the time that they occurred, and that suddenly becomes very, wow, that that was last moments. And I, yes,
2: yeah, you, the realization on reflection. I mean, I, the, with the TT there's always this undercurrent of gloom, I guess. So I it's not tragic but there is there is more of an edge um because lots of lives are lost on that road race and I, I'd read because you know I was saying I'd read your stuff I'd read that you were searching it's for um Raul Torres you were searching for him because you'd missed him you hadn't caught up with him so tell us how that came about eventually you spotted him
3: I mean I <sighs> Yeah, I think when I, when I think back on TT this year, I was definitely just in my own little world, which is not unusual for me. And I was, I remember I was literally skipping through the paddock to my friend's pit area. I can't remember. I think it might've, I might've been going to see Dom or Renny or someone, but I was skipping through the paddock and there's like a shower block and toilet block in the middle of the paddock. And I was skipping by and Raul, Raul came out of the bathroom and he had his leathers on around his waist. He had a towel around his neck. and I called out to him and he called out to me and I said, I've been looking for you and, you know, todas, ados, where have you been? And and he, he goes to me, you still need to work on your Spanish. Like I pretend that I can speak Spanish. I can't. And, um, you know, we laughed and I said, you know, I'm going to watch your race down at Bray Hill. I'm going to be with some friends. And he said, we'll catch up tomorrow. And we'd been planning to work together on some sponsorship opportunities for him which in a past life is what I did for a living. So I said, you know, let's create a kit. Let's work on it together. And he said, we'll see you tomorrow. We'll catch up for a beer tonight or something. Just flick me a message afterwards. And I said, yep, I will. I'll be watching you from, from Bray Hill. Kiss, hug. And I started skipping away again and I turned back and I waved. And then that was, he went back to his pit and was getting ready to go out and race. And that was, yeah, it was so at the time I didn't think anything of it, you know, I was like, yeah. And I, I text my, my husband and my friends. I was like, yeah, I've seen Raoul. Like we're going to catch up later. And because we'd been looking for him all of practice week and he was just never at his tent or he was never where we were, or he was on stage, you know, in the TT paddock or something. So we were never crossing paths and it was just in that small, you know, one minute of time, we just saw each other. And I mean, it sounds so gloomy and it sounds so sad and it it is and you know Rao wasn't like my best friend or anything it wasn't someone that I knew extremely well it was just someone that had always been kind to me and polite to me and my very first TT he invited me into his pit area and showed me the bikes and was telling me about racing and he had a really lovely relationship with my mother-in-law as well because she works at the northwest and, and other places so it was really hard and I got a phone call from Simon I think it was I was either Simon or from from Guido another journalist telling me like oh Rao's passed away and I remember saying you're lying you're full of shit like that's not come out how do you know and lo and behold it it did come out in a press release but I remember the moment I was told I I grabbed my handbag from where I was and I just walked all the way to the tea stand and then I was like shit I need to go back I can't just leave my you know where I was people might think of you know whatever walked all the way back and my friend said to me, thank you for all your help this week. It's been great, blah, blah, blah. And I just blurted out like Ra- Raoul's died. And it wasn't even an official announcement yet, but I knew that from the people it had come from, it was very much the case. Um, yeah, and I'm not someone that can keep, like I I am so bad at hiding my emotions or how I feel. You know, I think I'm really good at it. I'm not, like what you see is what you get. If I'm not, my general disposition is I'm very smiley. And people will say to me, "If I'm not smiling, are you okay? Is something wrong?" So it, I can't hide how I feel. Um, and that was, that was that day. That was how that unfolded, and it was very sad. And as with all things in road racing, you you know, go to bed and you get up the next day and you do it all again, and you don't really process it until you leave. Um, and I, yeah, that was and it was it was horrible it was sad of course it was sad it was it had been such a successful TT as well um but it happened and you can't avoid it and you know I I do believe to a degree if you're doing what you love doing then people shouldn't prevent you from doing that
2: the risks are known and the racers choose to race
3: yeah death is the final and it's gutting it is but in saying that it's the greatest road race on earth and it's it calls it calls you back every time and I can guarantee there are races last year and this year who said they weren't going to do it again and as soon as the sign-up sheet comes out their name will be on it because you just it is it is a drug it is a drug that you cannot stop taking and it might be bad for you but god it feels good and that's the nature of it you know and people people are very critical of me for my love of road racing um they you know, tell me how can I have certain feelings about concussion and safety in MotoGP, but be okay with what they call like a blood sport. And the fact of the matter is they're different sports. They're very different outcomes. They're very different machines and they're very different people Uh, because I don't see someone like Peko Banyaya getting on a TT bike any day soon. When you're there in the pits, does it feel different to being at the MotoGP races? Oh, Totally totally like you i think in moto gp you don't expect people to go out and not not come back um which is it's so heavy like it is so depressing to say that but it is it is a reality and you acknowledge that and you try to ignore the feeling of it but that is the fact you know moto gp doesn't make me nervous um that's a lie actually it does now because it's gotten so dangerous because of all of these aero and whole shot devices and tires and whatnot i mean after what happened to Pecco a few weeks ago i was i screamed i was watching it in the media center i screamed with horror um but you it's a very different sensation because generally closed circuit racing yes bad things happen and they we can't avoid them they do happen you know that that's the truth they have happened in recent years but generally speaking it's It's not often. It doesn't feel like it's often anyway. Um, And generally speaking, they go into the same tracks with, you know, a lot of regularity. So everybody knows what they're doing all of the time. It's not, things aren't generally a surprise. Um, So the feeling is very different. And I think what I've discovered about myself as a human being with racing is I've made a career out of it. And I'm continuing to make a career out of things like road racing as well. And I have to acknowledge in my little silly little soul that I care a lot. And as soon as I stop pretending that I don't, I feel better because I do care. I care about my friends like, and, you know, not just them coming back. I care about things like results. I care about how they feel. I, I want them to be happy. I want them to get the best out of whatever they're doing. And if it makes them happy, then go and do that. Um, And I think what made me nervous at TT specifically was a lot of things weren't going the way that people had planned. And that made me feel quite uneasy because it's the kind of place where things should go to plan. If things go to plan, you feel quite content. If they don't, you worry. So how do you, for people who haven't been to the Isle of Man and been to the TT races,
2: um, how difficult is it to get around? We hear these points thrown out there Bray Hill and whatever you know you race to get there you rush not race rush to get there are you riding up the roads Do you hire cars what What are the
3: distances how does the whole I mean as long as you're you can you can travel around on the course I think up until about 30 minutes before the road closes so if you want to get you can get to your vantage point there are ways to get to vantage points that aren't on the course um don't take don't do what I do and not pay attention to the time that the roads close because at the Manx Grand Prix this year, I almost ended up on the mountain because I thought it was 9.30. It was, in fact, 10.30 and I didn't change my watch from European time to UK time. <laughs> yep, it was one of my finest moments. Um, <laughs> but you can you can get around quite easily. And I think if you've never been to TT before and you're worried about what it's going to be like and are you going to meet people and can you ask for help, you the Isle of Man is like the place. Everyone will go out of their way to help you. Lots of visitors to the island have been there for donkey's years. They come every year. Um, you'll make friends really quickly. It's never, it's, it's such a community. There's no community like it. I've never been at a place that felt more like home immediately. Um, people help each other. And if you want to jump in someone's car, if you want to jump on the back of a bike and get a ride to go up somewhere, people will do that. I think there's like all these different Facebook groups as well that you can join. If you've never been like, there's so much opportunity, you know, and generally speaking from the TT grandstand to Douglas, everything's within walking distance. Um, yeah. Like from, from Douglas promenade to to TT grandstand, which is where the paddock is. Um, you can get around pretty well. It's not hard to get around and just do a little bit of research on the kind of spots you're comfortable sitting at because I sat at Gorsley this year and I quite frankly, was so scared for my life. It was amazing. I loved it, but also it was scary because it was this far away from my face. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is how it ends. Um, But the other really, you know, something I would suggest to people who have maybe been a couple of times before, but want to do something different is go marshalling as well. Um, You get all of your training, but you can choose what kind of corner you want to sit at. All of the marshals are really lovely. They've been doing it for a long time as well. Um, and it gives you a whole new vantage point and experience of the event as well which is incredible you know that if you're up to doing that go and do it
2: yeah didn't know you could just apply and train for that
3: yeah Yeah. I did it this year great fun did it at Crane and I I can't wait to do it again it was awesome
2: yeah such responsibility as well in a way
3: Yes. yes yes so don't get excited you're like a novice marshal for I think four or five, five races. Like you don't, you don't just, you're there to learn. <laughs> you don't do much. Um, but it, you know, the. it is, it is a cool experience and you get to bond with people and you'll talk about things that you have in common. And, you know, I think that's, what's really incredible about this community and convincing people that it's an event worth going to is quite difficult when it has quite a somber under, undertone. Um, but it is an incredible event and it is worth going. And the people that go are fully aware of everything there's not a single thing that they're missing they know that this is dangerous they know that people that they love everything and we still go because there's no place like it and the community is so individual um and it does it is a place that feels like home it really does
2: you have a favorite watering hole that you hang in the evenings
3: uh well there's there's a couple a lot of them are dives um but you can usually find me at 1886 on level two dancing mostly that's kind of where I always unfortunately like it is so it's quite I should be past this level of going clubbing with 18 or 19 year olds and I'm not so you'll always find me there if you if you're looking for like a pixie blonde you know bob cut girl that's probably me
2: you're very um coy in mentioning and I hope you don't mind me bringing it up but you had a very shocking and nasty accident that has left you scarred from head to toe well from neck to toe um to give people a bit of background we met recently in Italy and you didn't mention it at all until like people started wheedling things out about you know life events that had happened to them
3: um I was <sighs> where was I I was I was, it was November, 2020. So this was between lockdowns in Australia and my friends and I had decided, oh, we'll go, let's go on a holiday to South Australia in hindsight. Why? Cause it's South Australia. No disrespect to my friends in Adelaide. I love you all. Um, you know, it, it was like, yeah, we'll go and do it because we've been in lockdown for nine months. We're going insane. Um, let's go to Adelaide. So we went to Adelaide and South Australia for a couple of weeks and we had a great trip until the accident. Um, we had rented a Airbnb in Brighton and it had like a methylated spirits fire pit. And by some way, I mean, we, the house itself was beautiful. There was a pool. It was a really modern house. We'd been swimming that afternoon. I'm so thankful that I had wet swimsuit, uh, wet wet bathers on underneath my clothes when all of this unfolded. Um, There was a methylated spirits fire pit, which we lit. And unfortunately it was faulty. Um, and the person sitting next to it was me. Um, I it grabbed onto my clothes, the flames, and I screamed in pain and I screamed I was on fire, and I remember falling to the floor screaming, I'm on fire and and it it's so strange to me. I remember it vividly. I remember this exactly how it happened, everything that happened and it yeah I got up and I ran towards the pool and the pool gate was faulty so I'm trying to open this pool gate and eventually I dived in the pool and you were on fire at this point yeah I was That's probably a silly thing to ask no 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 it's fine it was it was incredibly painful and it was you there is I know people have been in pain I know what pain feels like believe me but the kind of pain you experience from being on fire is like none other and it is the most painful thing you will ever, will ever experience. I would rather have broken bones any day. I would rather have broken ribs. You know, if I had to choose my accident, I'd I'd you know shatter my leg before I did this again. I really would. It's the whole body. It's not you weren't just your hand caught fire because you were near. No, no, no. I so I was quite fortunate. I had like a, a green wet bikini on underneath my clothes, and that was the only thing that saved my my boobs and and whatnot. It really was. And it was horrible. You know, I dived into this pool and I remember I just had a manicure done that week. I had baby pink nails on and they were, and I remember I I dived out and my skin was just not on my body. Essentially, it was hanging off. And I, it's weird how your brain starts to operate. So in that moment, I knew I had clothes on. I knew I had jewelry on. So I started pulling all of my jewelry off and putting it on the side of the pool. And I started pulling my clothes off in the pool and I'm naked in this pool. And I, my friend is calling you know, the, the ambulance and, and whatnot. And like, I didn't realize my legs were burnt at that time. I didn't realize that my stomach and my chest was burnt. I just thought it was my arms. I remember I was in the pool and I was just saying to myself, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. I remember this really vividly telling myself this, you're okay, you're okay. And I could feel that my face had been burnt. I could feel that my chin had been on fire. I could feel all this pain, like my neck, everything, my chest, everything was on fire. And I, I remember I was like, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And I had to get out of the pool because I was getting so cold because your body, your skin regulates your body temperature. And I suddenly had 60% less skin on my body. <laughs> so I'm at this point shivering cold and the ambulance came and they put me in the downstairs shower and they gave me penthrax, which is like a fast acting drug. You kind of smoke it. um, And it just, you don't, you don't know what's going on. You can't feel anything suddenly. And I, (laughs) I remember being in the ambulance and I was wrapped up in this silver blanket and there was this really, really good looking paramedic, like we're talking top shelf, good looking guy. And honestly, I clearly have no fear because here I am, I'm talking to this guy. I'm like, how long are you in Adelaide for, oh, you're from Adelaide and we should go for a drink next week. You're so good looking. I'm on so many drugs at this point. Like God knows. well You are not sociable. (laughs) know it was like, I'll never give up an opportunity to flirt with a good looking guy. Jesus Christ. I <laughs> know I've got no skin, but would you like to? Literally. I was like, I'm I'm gonna be in Adelaide for another week. And he goes, No, babe, I think you're gonna be in Adelaide a little bit longer than that. And I was like, Awesome! Like we can go out more than once. So clearly I'm off on another planet. Um, I wake up a couple of days later, I think, from from memory, I think it was a couple of days later, and I realized like, okay, my entire body is burnt. I cannot move. I have thousands of staples in my body. I don't know what the hospital's done to me and my family don't know. My family don't know I'm here because I was in and out of consciousness and I refused to unlock my iPhone for my friend to call my dad. Um, Because I was just, no, no, you're not calling my family. And, And they didn't know for about a week. I held off of telling them for a week that I was in hospital. Like I was very scared and, and, you know while all of this was occurring as well I might add the whole of australia went back into lockdown so suddenly i'm alone in hospital again with only my friends to come and see me that i was on holiday with so it was it was a crazy time and um that was my accident that was what you know that's what happened and i had to learn to walk again and i was quite fortunate they told me when i went into hospital i'd be there for 6 months and then i'd probably be in a rehab facility for 3 months i I was told that I wouldn't walk for three months give or take um I walked 19 days after my accident gosh and I yep had my first skin graft four or five weeks after my accident so it was like the first of December first of January and I walked out of hospital on my 25th birthday wow so I spent a total of 11 weeks in hospital didn't have to go I had to I went back to sydney i went back to work i still had to go to the hospital three days of the week while i was in sydney um but come hell or high water i was getting out of that place i wasn't going to stay there and i i didn't i left and 2021 that year was even harder than i imagined i ended up having multiple surgeries because the doctor would tell me not to walk and i wouldn't mm-hmm. listen so i would crack open my skin grafts or i would fall over because i didn't believe that i needed my wheelchair. I wouldn't listen. You know, I was just determined not to, to do what they told me to do. And looking back, I kind of wish I'd been nicer to myself, but um, no, I just got on with it. And looking back, that was the worst thing I could have done. Cause I really, really needed to give myself the space to realize that life had changed. Um, but I didn't want to acknowledge that at the time. And I think I went from being this 24 year old, you know, standard pretty girl, nice body you know i i knew that i was and there's nothing vain about that i knew i was a pretty girl i knew i was good looking and i to a degree believed that that's what gave me a lot of value um and it's been a lot of work since then to realize that that's not my value and actually i've made bad choices based on that you know before and after um because after the accident i went from being this really pretty 23 24 year old to suddenly being this 25 year old who was just determined to be better and I think I used to get so annoyed I used to get so annoyed when people would tell me you're inspirational and I was like why why am I inspirational because I'm going to work like people can't go to work I just had to fight everyone on anything that they would tell me that was true because looking back it was um but I just had to argue this this nothing had changed and I remember you know just thinking like i wanted to die there was a point where i wanted to die i think december 2021 i i was so close to just not waking up um and i didn't i i don't know why i just chose to live instead and my life got better it did it got better and i don't know why i stopped I'm not sure what thought popped into my head or why I thought i you know i I could just live instead, but I did. Um, and it did get better. And it's crazy to me that that's that's my story. and And looking back now, and I think i I was talking to you about this the other day, i I am so grateful's not the right word, but I am so aware that all of the wonderful things that have happened in my life, from the businesses I'm starting to, you know my dream was to be a journalist in MotoGP, and I did that none of those things actually would have happened if I didn't go through this really tragic time in my life. Um, and I'm not, I don't know if I'll ever be grateful for it, but I'm grateful for the lessons I've learned from it. And I think to a degree, I'm happy that my physically, how I feel about myself, I'm confident and I'm happy in how I look. And I don't care that I have scars. And, you know, if that bothers you, that's something that is wrong with you, not the other way around, you know, and. I, my life is normal, but it it definitely made me who I am today. And I think more than that, it made me a better friend. Um, Importantly, it's made me a really patient and kind person when I need to be for the people that need me. And it's also made me be the person that tells people to pull their head out of their backside.
2: You are so genuine. And I don't think you give yourself enough credit for the sort of person you are. And I don't know who you were how different you were before your accident but it certainly doesn't define you and that's quite incredible you know you don't meet people and within a few sentences you start telling telling the the hard luck story of how you were in this horrendous nasty accident
3: oh thank you <laughs> no i i think even looking back from when that it happened i didn't want to i remember i i cried and i i literally cried so much and it was all because of this stupid thing that one of my ex-boyfriends said to me, and it stuck with me for life. He goes, You're the type of girl that musicians write songs about. And it made me so vain. That that whole sentence made me the vainest little girl you'd ever met. And I remember after my accident calling my dad, being like, They don't write songs about girls. Like they don't. I just remember being so upset and so uncomfortable and and moving through these emotions. I, I look back now and I'm like, well you're a cool person because of all of that and i didn't i didn't ever want my accident to define me you know it's it's not stopped me it's not ever prevented me from doing anything i think you know even the the first year right on the anniversary of it we had a birthday party it was like my new my new birthday my second birthday and yeah i had a cake i had a balloon i had candles and it was great fun it was just it's really bizarre that I look back on that day now and I've I've done everything in my power to make it as positive as I possibly can because I'm fully aware of the fact that I am I am a better person I'm a better friend and I'm I'm a I'm achieving and succeeding things that I wouldn't have if that didn't happen and not that I wouldn't have but I wouldn't have done it in record time because I think when you're young you're allowed to be silly and make mistakes and it sort of made me grow up quite quickly um which I'm grateful for but also it, it means that I I overthink or maybe I I analyze everything now where I didn't when I was younger and there's I missed the, the naivety of being young there's something so nice and blissful about being naive and I miss that
2: it's funny how you come to appreciate that once it's gone but you are incredible because you know it's it's been a life-changing horrendous event and you don't even give yourself credit for that you just sort of throw it under the I've matured banner.
3: But <laughs> I mean, do you know what? Like if I had to sit here and and genuinely like, yeah, my skin looks different and, you know, I've got, I've got a few surgeries and, yes, like I would be a liar if I didn't, if I sat here and told you I didn't get my lips done after my accident and things. Like, of course I did because they were things that were important to me. But at the end of the day, even with my accident, it kind of makes sense why I'm so passionate about things like a disability and accessibility board. And it's it's why I'm so passionate about helping young people realise that they they have so much potential and not to hate on themselves and not even young people, just my friends. I hate it when my friends call me and tell me they hate themselves or they don't believe in in what they're doing and they don't know how to find it because it's it's, why not? Why not? The The biggest barrier you're going to face in your life is always going to be you. And the worst thing that anyone is ever going to tell you is no. They can say they hate you. They can say they hate how you look. They can say you're a bitch, whatever they want. Ultimately, how you feel about yourself is the most important relationship you have. And then everything else becomes easier. And I think that's, you know, maturity and it was my accident. And I think I, I'm really grateful that in my position I'm able to speak about it and not make it my entire personality's trait despite the fact I make jokes about it which is um, I'm well known for like if somebody subs their toe I turn around and go oh do you need a skin graft like I'm so unsympathetic this is what I mean I'm also like the the tough love friend but um, (laughs) it's yeah I'm I'm so proud of myself and I'm not ashamed to say that I think it was It was such a challenge and it was hard. And I still have my days where I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh God. Well, you know, you look at photos from when you're young and you're like, I want to look like that again. 18 year old, no wombs in the world, beautiful hair. I don't know how I had it all. No money. I don't know how I used to go out so often, pay my rent and have no money and savings. Like I had a little bit of savings. I didn't, what is that? But um, no, I. the one thing that I can take away from that Above everything else is that it made me a better person to myself and to the people I love, and I hope that you know one day when I'm not here, my friends and my family can go. Maddie, Maddie was my person to call, and and Maddie was always smiling, and that's kind of how I want to be remembered. Like you know, I want people to be able to look at my story and look at all the bad things I've done in life and all the bad choices I've made, and just go, well, she turned out alright. I think
2: you you exude a lot of
3: hope, and I. I feel you sort
2: of draw people in because of your positivity and and your sharing. I think you're a, you're a, a wonderful person. You're a real ray of sunshine. Thank you, Maddie Paddy.